Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. M.I.P. With Massimella Mark Thompson. Get woke. Folks, in the immediate aftermath of the SCOTUS hearing on the Affordable Care Act, which took place on Tuesday the 10th, uh, today is the 11th. Uh, we want to get some immediate reaction. And who better uh, than one we've not talked to in some time, but he has always uh, been an expert when it comes to the Supreme Court um, and everything going on in the legal world. So we wanted to reach out and have him to get his reaction and give us some analysis on what happened at the hearing. In Milheiser of Vox.com joins us. Hey, buddy. How are you, Ian? It's good to be back. Uh, thanks so much. It's, it's a pleasure to have you back, man. So um, what are your thoughts about the hearing um, and what happened? I know you wrote, um, and others have been writing, too, from what was taken from the oral arguments. Um, there's been somewhat of a consensus that, from other media and other journalists, that the ACA may not be in as much danger as previously thought. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a really ridiculous lawsuit. Um, the idea here is that when Congress, so the Affordable Care Act originally had what's called the individual mandate. It requires you to either have health insurance or pay slightly higher taxes. Um, Congress changed the law in 2017 to say that the amount of taxes you have to pay is now zero dollars if you don't have health insurance. You effectively repealed the mandate. And the claim is that a zero dollar mandate is unconstitutional. And because the zero dollar mandate is unconstitutional, it therefore follows that the entire Affordable Care Act root and branch must be struck down. 
And that theory seems unlikely to prevail. Both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, who are Republican appointees to the court, just, I mean, they, they said explicitly, like, we don't, we're not convinced by the theory that the whole wall needs to fall. So that's good news. I think that there are other cases that are likely to do considerable damage to the Affordable Care Act, but this kind of wholesale repeal that a lot of Republican attorneys general were looking for here, I, I don't think it's going to happen. The word that was thrown around a lot today in the oral, oral arguments I listened to and tried to follow, mm -hmm. uh, the word that was thrown around was severability. Yep. Is, is that what we're talking about? And I heard Kavanaugh say it a lot. Yeah. So, that, uh, talk to us about what that means and, and why that may not make the ruling on this as bad as, as previously anticipated. Gotcha. So the Affordable Care Act is like 900 pages long. It's a huge law. And the plaintiffs claim that one little provision, the zeroed out individual mandate, is unconstitutional. And the what severability is, is that when you strike down one small part of a broader law, does more of the law have to follow, follow with it? A law is called severable if you're allowed to keep more, you know, most of the law that's th that is not unconstitutional. And the rule generally has been that courts should presume severability, meaning that they should try to save as much of the law as possible. Um, in this case, you know, there appears to be a majority that believes that even if the zeroed out mandate has to fall, the rest of the law should be deemed severable. And that would mean that the rest of the law, all the parts of the law that actually still do something. Um, will will still survive. So would it be harmful if the mandate was struck down altogether? What what bearing would that have on any or everyone else, if, it, if any bearing at all? I mean, I'm sure that there's going, some law professor will make tenure writing some paper discussing how important it is that this mandate that does nothing was struck down. But I mean, it's it, like the provision that is at issue here, the provision that they argue is unconstitutional says either you should have either you should have health insurance or you have to pay nothing. Zero dollars. So it, it just doesn't do anything. I, I mean, there might be some doctrinal implications for future cases if they say that this provision that does nothing is unconstitutional. But if all they do is strike down the zeroed out mandate, but leave the rest of all intact, I call that a win for the Affordable Care Act. Because, you know, who, who cares if they say that a provision of law that does nothing at all is unconstitutional? So am, am, is it accurate to then say because of the questions that Roberts and Kavanaugh raised today about severability, that those are the two votes necessary to keep it from being struck, struck down altogether? Is that what we're gleaning from the oral arguments today? I think that's right. I, I mean, you know, you can never be certain after an oral argument, but, you know, there's there's three liberal justices appointed by Democrats. I don't think there's really any chance they would vote to strike down Obamacare. And then Roberts and Kavanaugh, I mean, I can read, I, I have their, their quotes in front of you. Roberts said to one of the lawyers arguing that the law should be struck down that it's hard for you to argue that Congress intended the entire law to fall if the mandate was struck down when Congress didn't repeal the entire act. It just zeroed out the one provision. 
And then Kavanaugh, he was speaking to Don Verrilli, who was one of the lawyers arguing that the law should be upheld. And Kavanaugh, here's the quote from him. I agree with you that this is a straightforward case for severability under our precedents, meaning that we would excise the mandate and leave the rest of the law in place. So, you, you know, you can never be absolutely certain after an oral argument, but those are some of the most airtight quotes that, I mean, often I'm reading tea leaves after an oral argument and like, that's, that's not tea. I mean, that, that is, you know, about as direct a statement as I have heard from a judge in an appellate argument regarding what they're going to do in the case. So I am optimistic here that the whole law is not going to be struck, even though they're probably going to come back in future cases and, you know, make some cuts at the law. Yeah. Um, but now, mind you, Ian, mm -hmm. some in the Trump administration are still planning for his inauguration. Right. So we're in a, a post-factual world. How often is it do we find, by your description, airtight statements like that from the bench? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and then opposite statements when it comes to the opinion that that doesn't happen very often. I take it. It does. I mean, first of all, judges just typically aren't as explicit as those two quotes that I read. I mean, you know, most of the time and I've attended a lot of arguments, I, you know, I clerked for a federal appeals court. So I've just seen a lot of judges hearing arguments right. and normally they try to convey the impression that oh, we're just asking questions, we have an open mind. I mean, it just doesn't happen that often that, I mean, judges normally spend their question time asking questions, not making statements. And in this case, I think we got two fairly explicit statements from two key justices that, that they don't think this law this lawsuit's going to go anywhere. Um, I mean, I can think of a lot of reasons why they might have done that. I mean, maybe they worry, they don't want, the health insurance industry and the hospital industry to deal with six months of uncertainty. They don't want the stock market to freak out. So maybe they're trying to, to, to reassure people here with these statements. Um, you know, again, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, God forbid a justice could die before Trump leaves office. Maybe his coup is successful and then all bets are off. But I think the most likely outcome here is that Joe Biden will be sworn in as president. The Supreme Court's membership will stay the same. And there's going to be at least five votes to preserve the Affordable Care Act. Um, were we able to glean anything from Amy COVID <laughs> comments, the newest justice? She is hard to read. So, I mean, Barrett, she's not just a law professor or former law professor, but she's a former law professor who tended to write legal theory. Like I've read a lot of her scholarship and it's some law professors focus on more practical aspects of the law. She didn't do that. Her work was fairly theoretical. And if I'm honest with you, a lot of her questions struck me as if she's still thinking like a, a legal theorist and not like a judge. Like they, some of them seem to be probing really esoteric points that I, I mean, seemed pretty far afield of where the case was. I think she asked some questions which indicated she's sympathetic to the plaintiffs. She asked some questions which indicate she's sympathetic to the side arguing that the law should be upheld. And I don't know what she's going to do. Now, that said, if Roberts and Kavanaugh both vote to um, uphold the law, then I don't think Barrett's vote matters that much. Yeah, th that will be, I mean, that will give it, I guess, three plus two is five. Right. 
Yeah. So that would that would cover it. But now you mentioned that there are other cases in the pipeline. Can yeah. You give us a, a glimpse of what those are. So the case that has me the most nervous is a case that was decided last June called Little Sisters. Um, Little Sisters involved the the so-called birth control mandate, the requirement that insurers have to cover um, birth control for free. And to explain how that works, the, the Affordable Care Act doesn't actually say everyone gets free birth control. It says that there shall be certain forms of women's preventative care that are covered without any kind of copay or anything like that. And it's up to a federal agency to decide what those forms of women's preventative care are that are covered with that for free. Um, it also says things about other forms of care. Some forms of pediatric care should be covered for free. Some forms of uh, of infant care, you know, some for, you know, various forms of care, um, a federal agency gets to decide are covered. And the what the court said in Little Sisters is that it is very skeptical that that sort of power to decide what forms of coverage shall be free can be delegated to a federal agency in the way it was delegated by the Affordable Care Act. So you could see the provi- you know, the requirement that insurance has to cover birth control being struck down. You could see the requirement that it has to f- cover other forms of preventive care, you know, pediatric care, stuff like that, that that could all be struck down. And insur- the insurance that people get could be much worse because of it. Um, that wouldn't gut Obamacare. I mean, people would still be able to get insurance. They still be able to get subsidies. You know, people who uh, benefit from the Medicaid expansion would still have Medicaid. So it, it wouldn't be the 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 crisis that we would have if the whole whole law strikes down. But it's still a big deal. I mean, a, a lot of people depend on the free contraceptive care. A lot of people have children and depend on knowing that their plan is going to cover the pediatric care. There, there's just a lot of things that insurance is supposed to cover under the Affordable Care Act that could potentially be taken off the table once the Supreme Court revisits the issues that were at issue in the Little Sisters case. Okay. When does that come back up? Um, So there isn't a case currently pending. I mean, Little Sisters was decided last June, but I, I mean, if Justice Thomas wrote the opinion, he was really, really explicit that he thought that various parts of, of the law were troubling. Um, and so, you know, when, when five justices sign on to opinion, an opinion which signals that loudly that they think there's a constitutional infirmity in a law, it's only a matter of time before some lawyer files a lawsuit and it's, and it's going to make its way up. Um, be remiss if I didn't ask you about this notion of expanding the court. And the mainstream media unfairly accused Biden and Harris of packing the court when you right. and I know who's really been doing the packing with all these federal judges. That's not packing. This is what, what, what do you think about expanding the court? And is that a viable option for a new administration and a new Congress? Yeah. So the idea here is that the Supreme Court, the Constitution doesn't actually say how many justices can sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, the number has been as low as five. It's been as large as 10. There was a brief period in the Lincoln administration when there were 10 justices. So Congress could decide that it wanted to have a 15 justice court or, you know, they could they decide they wanted a 100,000 justice court. They can decide the law that it should be a, however big it wants. 
in an ideal world, you know, I would like to see a Democratic Congress expand the court. I think that the court has said a lot of things about voting rights that are very troubling. And, you know, I worry that we're not going to have free and fair elections in the future if the Supreme Court gets to implement this agenda that seems to be very hostile to voting rights. The problem is that there probably isn't going to be a Democratic Congress. Um, I, I mean, right now, we, you know, Democrats are going to have 48 seats in the incoming Senate. There are two Georgia races that are still in play. If Democrats win both of those Georgia races, there would be a 50-50 Senate with uh, Vice President-elect Harris casting the deciding vote. So that would be the narrowest Democratic majority, which would mean that you would need every single senator to agree both to nuke the filibuster and then to use that bare majority to expand the size of the Supreme Court. And you'd have to pass it out of the House and President Biden would have to sign it. So, you, you know, if there was a bill to add seats to the Supreme Court and I were a member of the United States Congress, I would vote yes on it. But like, I, I think we're largely talking about talking theory here because, you know, given that there's probably not going to be a Democratic Senate, um, you know, given how malapportioned the Senate is, so it's very hard for Democrats to win a majority in the Senate. It's just hard for me to see a future, at least in the near future, where there's going to be the votes to add seats. Well, yeah. And, and even if we get those two seats in Georgia, which I'm still very hopeful about, I think the other factor, the political factor, um, is that, you know, Republicans are just bold. They do whatever they want to do. We as Democrats, we we're a little more tenuous. Oh, we need to think about this. We need to take our time. And, you know, it's it's like there's a fear yeah. almost for pulling the trigger. And I'm not saying it's unfounded because Democrats are often held to a higher standard and a false equivalency. Yeah. <laughs> that Republicans are not. So we got those two seats in Georgia. I don't even agree with you. Disagree with you. Then Democrats may not have the oomph you know, to see it through as much as I also agree with you, as much as it needs to be done. Yeah. On the other hand, and I was doing a little bit of reading about the court having its own politics. Right. Um, and I think at the time of FDR, when there was a debate and, and the court made decisions that sent signals that we're good. Don't mess with us. Yeah. All right. <laughs> as opposed to just going Buckwild. So, for example, let's say they struck down the ACA. Let's say they did more damage to the Voting Rights Act and a bunch of other crazy things. You know, that would might build public support for expansion. Do you lend any credence to that theory or speculation that a court in, in this type of political climate to avoid expansion might just temper yeah. uh, <laughs> some of its more radical it, it, uh, uh, decisions is that a is that a a, a founded yeah way I, of thinking? I think it depends on the justice i mean like you have people like clarence thomas and neil gorsuch who i think just believe they're right and it doesn't matter what the consequences are they're just going to do what they want and then you have people like chief justice roberts who i think does understand the court as a body with limited political legitimacy and that, you know, that can push too far. And like, I think that explains why Roberts has fairly consistently rejected attempts to strike down the Affordable Care Act. 
fact. Mm-hmm. Um, now that said, you, you know, I go back to what I was saying earlier about voting rights. Like one area where the court is not showing that it's going to stay its hand is voting rights. There's a case in front of the court this term that I worry could so weaken the Voting Rights Act, which is the primary safeguard we have against racist voter discrimination, that the Voting Rights Act would would really cease to do much at all. And I mean, Democrats win between 80 and 90 percent, sometimes more more than 90 percent of African-Americans. So if you take out safeguards against racist voting discrimination, what you see happens in a lot of red states is they say, oh, or, or, you know, or in a lot of purple states with red legislatures is they say, well, we know how we can identify a bunch of Democrats disenfranchised. We just look where the black people are. And, you know, if you take out voting machines in the precincts, so like in theory, black people can still vote, but they have to wait in six hour lines. If you, you know, I mean, what North Carolina did was they actually looked at which kinds of IDs white people are particularly likely to have and which kinds of IDs black people are particularly likely to have. And you could vote with the kinds of IDs that white people were more likely to have. You know, Texas, this is the most brazen example of this. I mean, I don't know if this is racial, but it's certainly partisan. In Texas, they put a voter ID law where you couldn't use a student ID because young people tend to vote for Democrats, but you could use a gun permit because Republicans are more likely to have guns. And, and so I worry that you're going to see a lot of laws like that. I also worry that the Supreme Court's given some signals recently that they are going to make it harder to stop gerrymandering in um, states that have Republican legislatures and Democratic governors. They might say that the, that the Democratic governor is not allowed to veto a gerrymandering bill. They may say that the a state Supreme Court is not allowed to rein in gerrymandering. And you just have a lot of states. I mean, and these are like big key swing states like Florida, Michigan, um, North Carolina, um, Pennsylvania, you know, Wisconsin. The cases were always the states were always talking about that if Republican legislatures and at least in some cases have either a Democratic governor or a Democratic um, Supreme Court. And if the court or the governor is not allowed to intervene, also in some cases they have independent redistricting commissions, those might be struck down. Then the congressional maps are just going to be whatever the Republican Party wants them to be. And it's going to be very, very hard for Democrats to keep their grip on the House um, going into the next election. Wow. Yeah. They would set that up to make it difficult to keep the House. Well, one last thing. Are you seeing or you anticipating any of of Trump's current election arguments working their way up to the Supreme Court? Um, I'm not seeing anything that I think is likely to be heard by the Supreme Court. There is a case that seeks to throw out, you know, maybe a few thousand ballots that were cast in Pennsylvania. And I mean, I think that case is wrong and it should lose. But I also don't think it matters because the number of contested ballots is smaller than Biden's margin of victory in Pennsylvania. So even if the ballots are tossed out, Biden still wins. Um, There are some more. I mean, there's one suit arguing that like all like everyone in Pennsylvania should be disenfranchised. And I guess it just doesn't have electoral votes anymore. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. You know, there's various lawsuits 
asking for kind of like pointing to what they claim are very small violations and asking for ridiculous remedies. So like there's one lawsuit where they claim Trump campaign advisor or Trump campaign poll watchers weren't allowed to like have enough ability to watch the ballots being counted. And then they say, so the remedy should be that every ballot that we didn't have enough opportunity to see counted doesn't count. And like, that that's not how that works. So like, I, I mean, I think of this in two. I mean, one is I think that these lawsuits, the other thing that I think about is that the Republican majority on the Supreme Court doesn't need Donald Trump anymore. You, you know, you know they, there's a six to three Republican majority on the Supreme Court. There is probably going to be a Republican Senate, which means that Democratic justices or judges, for that matter, won't be confirmed unless Mitch McConnell lets them be confirmed. And if you're Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett, like, why would you why would you support a coup and like risk civil war? and delegitimize everything that you're doing when you can just let Biden get in there. And he's honestly, if there's a Republican Senate, he's probably not going to be able to do very much. So like, why, why would you feel threatened by Joe Biden at this point? You still have your six to three majority. You could still strike down whatever he does. And then if you, if the Supreme court and the Senate are blocking everything that president Biden tries to do, Frankly, he's going to have a tough time running for re-election in four years because he won't have any accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. They've gotten what they want out of Trump. So what's the what's the point? It, it seems to me, though, and I, and I agree with you, none of these cases have merit. Who knows what they're going to do? But yeah. right now, it looks like a morale boost. If even if he leaves, if they can run in two years or in four years on the election having been stolen from him and keep their troops mobilized and the Supreme court will do what it does, as you said, and, and threaten the VRA and, and, and threaten uh, access to the ballot for the constituencies, particularly the African-American constituency that elected Biden, you know, they will have done enough damage and the rumor will be anyway, that Trump will run in four years again. So they, they may be laying that out. So Yeah, I mean, what I've been saying over and over again is like, I think the results of this election are going to be fine. I think that Joe Biden is going to be sworn in on January 20. And I think that he will get to serve at least four years as president. I think that the future of American democracy looks grim. And it might take another election or another three elections before we see how the things play out. But I'm very worried that the Supreme Court is working to dismantle our voting rights. I'm very worried that the Senate is so malapportioned. You know, you, there's 68 times as many people in California as they are in Wyoming, but both get two senators. In the incoming Senate, assuming that Republicans win both Georgia seats, Democratic senators will represent more than 20 million more people than Republican senators. So if we had fair elections for the Senate, there would be Joe Biden would be coming in with a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate. He'd be able to confirm his cabinet without any trouble. He'd be able to pass an agenda. If the Supreme Court screwed around, he might even be able to add justices to it. Um, But that's not what happened. You, You know, the Senate, the result in the Senate doesn't reflect the will of the American people. 
And I'm just worried that there isn't a solution on the horizon to fix that. Fortunately, I think you you may be right. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, Ian's latest piece, folks, Edvox, is entitled The Supreme Court Appears Likely to Reject the Latest Attack on Obamacare. Check it out. And also uh, his book uh, that we've talked about before um, as well, uh, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. And that is exactly uh, as we all know what what they've done. Uh, and we may be in store for more, but at least for the moment, looks like if the statements are consistent and Ian's experience working with courts suggests that they are, those statements stay the same. Right now, the Affordable Care Act may not be in, in bad shape, but we will continue to watch this. And we won't keep so long away from Ian. We're going to keep him close at hand as all this develops. Good to have you back on the show, buddy. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.